guys, welcome back to Revive School. Here we are, Luke 10, lesson 54. Man, it's fun to see how God can speak through the Word of God, how He can speak through, you know, daily devotionals. Just want to encourage you guys with Laura. Laura's writing, my wife is writing a daily devotional. You have, obviously, through, through Mindy's painting, which we're going to get into a whole lot today. I love what the Lord's going to do through this and apply it to the Word of God. And then, obviously, you can download this video. You can watch it um, online. You can listen on the radio. My, my point is, is that the Holy Spirit can speak to us in, in multiple ways. And I just want to say, keep going. You know, here we are, Luke 10. Kevin, how many, how many chapters? Tom, you know this. How many chapters are in Luke? It should be 24. How many? 24. 24. Do you say that with question or with authority? Question authority. Okay. <laughs> Apparently, you missed the message yesterday from Gordy. We've got to walk this thing out with authority here. And so here's the deal. In Luke, uh, there is 24 chapters. Thanks, Tom. Really appreciate that. Um, uh, I just I love the, the beauty of uh, of how God can speak to us at any given time. And sometimes what I think of is, you know, I, honestly, when I first saw Mindy's painting, I was like, I don't understand this painting. Anybody else like that over here? OK, thank you for admitting that. Oh, great. Thank you, guys. This is great. Mindy, no offense. But it was just kind of like, hey, where's the where's where is everything? And yet, as I have prayed through this, this one actually has spoken more to my heart, maybe than any other one. And I love the Gospel of Matthew. I loved it. But I go back to, and I know this speaks that people, people have it different ways. But to me, this is like the table. And we've talked about this this last week and the week before about how God is inviting everybody to the table. But for some reason, when you have this religious spirit, it's like you only want certain people to sit next to you at the table. In fact, you don't even want people to come into the room. And so when you have this religious spirit, you don't even have the, oh, yeah, come in and be a part of of what Christ wants. And when I study Luke 10, it's all about people coming to the table. But yet, for some reason, we think we're in control of who sits next to us. We think we're the ones that say, oh, you can come and be a part of this or you can't. And so as I prayed through Luke 10, he said, I want you to go back to the old days of like third grade. I mean, you guys remember the story of the Good Samaritan. You remember the, the, is it the flanographs, right? You know, you have these things that, no offense if you still use them today. But anyway, time to update. So anyway, you know, it's just kind of this mentality of like you have these images of these three people. But when I think about these three people, I honestly think about the table. I think about who we really want to come to the table or who's Christ want to come to the table. And so when you look at Luke 10, if you guys would, would you join me here in verse 25 and following? It just says this, just then, an expert in the law. Rich, I'm glad you're saved. Can I just tell you that? Because if you weren't, this would be you, this right, this guy right here. You'd be the expert in the law that wants to suck it to him or wants to drill it. I don't it. know if I, I'm not that good, but yes. See, thank you. The fact that you admitted it, it shows me that, that this is you. Here you have a lawyer, okay? Can I just say you have a lawyer. He stood up, and what was his whole purpose? Right here, what does it say, Kevin? What does he want to do? He wants to inter- uh, inherit eternal life. Yeah, but... Go back before even that. What does he really want to do to Jesus? He wants to trick him. That's all he wants to do. He just wants to test Jesus. Anybody have anybody around you that's like that? I love you, Rich, but (laughs) that's just all they want to do. They just want to give you a couple questions, and they know you're never going to be able to answer it. And so, praise the Lord, Rich just stopped asking me those questions. But that's what the lawyer wants to do. He is an expert in the Mosaic law. He knows the law. He knows everything about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He knows the Pentateuch. He knows the Torah. And so he's going to stand up and he's going to test. Remember, Jesus, who, where does he come from? Nazareth. 
Okay, he knows that he's the son of Joseph. He knows that he's the son of Mary. Let's trip him up now. I know you have brothers. I know you have sisters. Do you really, Rabbi, do you really understand the whole how to inherit eternal life? And so it's this initial stage. Now, the crazy thing is this question we see all throughout Scripture. You know, in Luke 18, okay, what we've been talking about and what we're going to see is that here you have a rich young man asking the similar questions. In Matthew 19, asking the similar questions. In John 3, our famous friend Nicodemus Ask similar questions. What do I got to do to inherit eternal life? Like this is a common question that even Solomon says, every one of us is seeking in our heart. Every one of us is searching, which is why I think you can ask this question anywhere, anytime to anybody, anywhere in the United States or beyond. Have you ever thought about what it looks like in the afterlife? If they're lying, I mean, if they're, if they're saying no, I, I actually believe somewhere in it they have. I really, I really believe. Scripture says that they, they all want to know some of them, their motivations is a little bit different. And so he says, hey, teacher, Jesus, what must I do to inherit uh, eternal life? Now, I wish I was as quick and sharp as Jesus because I love Jesus's response in verse 26. Now, remember this whole message. I want to go back to who's being invited to the table. OK, now think about this. And then what does Jesus ask this expert in the law? Well, in any good teacher in a dialogue, he says, well, what is written in the law? What does it say in the law about eternal life? So you tell me, Mr. Lawyer, you tell me what you know. And that's what he asked him. And he says, how, how do you, Jesus says this, how do you read it? I love this question because you know what he's doing? He's making the expert in the law go back to his own source. And he says, you tell me. Now, Kevin, if you would, would you go to Galatians 2.16? And the reason Jesus is doing this, he's setting him up. Yeah, in Galatians 2.16, I know it's not the Old Testament. Well, watch this. It says, know that no one is justified by the works of the law. Jesus knows whatever answer he's going to give, it's never going to be satisfaction. It's never going to actually be complete or fulfilled enough. So I love Jesus's question because it's, it's already going to be a failure. He sets up the expert. In fact, Kevin, one more, Galatians 3, 21. You got to understand something. When people ask a question, go back to why they're, they're, they're coming from this question. In Galatians 3, 21, look what it says. Is the law, therefore, contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given, look at this, that was able to give life, then righteousness would certainly be the law. You know what he's saying is, if the law was the end, it would have worked, but it doesn't work now. He says, you go back to the law. You tell me, how do you inter- inherit eternal life? And, and I love this because then in verse 27, the, the expert lawyer, he comes back with his great uh, what, what would you call this? This little banter, I guess. They have this banter and he says this. And I think he probably answered with confidence. And Jesus is just probably thinking, I can't believe he's even thinking he's going to come up with an answer. And he says this in verse 27, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. And, and I think as this expert's talking, he's probably even getting more confident. With all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Kind of like, boom. I got it. I, I actually know the answer. Well, he's quoting multiple verses from the law. So way to go, lawyer. So, Kevin, if you would, let's go a couple of places. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Let's go to Leviticus 19, 18 first. And he's going to quote two different things, two different verses. So in Leviticus 19, 18, uh, here's one of the components. Look, he says, don't take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. So, all right, good job. He's got one. Okay, now the other half of what he recited comes from, do you guys remember what we call that? We have it on the side of of a post when you walk in and out of a room, Deuteronomy. We call it the Shema. 
So he quotes Deuteronomy, if you would, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. So he quotes Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. So he's quoting two different sources that Moses has written, and he answers. It's crazy to me. If you actually read this, how do you inherit eternal life? These are his answers. I'm still scratching my head, right? Does anybody else... Like, does it anywhere in those verses that he just quoted, does it say you have eternal life? No, but for some reason, and watch this, this is important. Jesus said you've answered correctly because how do you inherit eternal life with that mindset in the Old Testament? Well, Jesus said you do this and you will live. So you know what he's ultimately implying? 100% ultimate obedience will get you eternal life if you live like that. Does that make sense? So he said, okay, great. You love me with everything. You love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, your strength, and you love your neighbor. He says, you do this and you'll live. You got it. Way to go. Good job. At that point, I would be freaking out because internally I know it's a fraud. Internally, I know there's no way what I just told this Jesus, this teacher, this rabbi, I can't, I can't do this. And Jesus himself is actually quoting the law again. He says, do this and live. Kevin, can you go to Leviticus 18, verse 5? I think it's so cool to me that the reason you can have these interactions, the reason that maybe somewhere down the road I'll be able to answer Rich's questions is that I know the word of God that well. That's how Jesus is. He says, keep my statutes and ordinances. And look what he says. A person will live if he does them. I am the Lord. So if you keep what you just said in Deuteronomy 6, if you keep what you just said in Leviticus 19, you got it. Do these and you'll live. Way to go, lawyer. Just one more, Kevin, if you would. Go to Ezekiel 20, verse 11. So the bar is, the standard is, it's like it just keeps getting higher and higher and higher. If you want to get eternal life based on the Torah and the Tanakh, you have to live to, Kevin, I'm sorry, how many laws? 613. Yeah, Kevin, way to go. Way to say that with authority. Tom, did you notice that? That's how you say that with authority, Right. All right, so here's the deal. In Ezekiel 20, verse 11, he says, Then I gave my statutes and explained my ordinances to them. And look what he says. The person who does them will live by them. If you want to see life based on the Old Testament, what do you have to do, Kevin? Keep the statutes. You got to keep these statutes. And how many are there again? 613. Yeah, what I love is, is that he just scratched the surface and gave the Shema and he, and he gave love your neighbor as yourself. And this is great. Jesus said, good job. If you do all of these things, you're going you're gonna to live. Way to go. Yes. And then you love this. In verse 29, uh, there's a little bit of a backpedal here, but I think this is kind of an obvious statement. Before we get there, Kevin, hang on. But realistically, who, who can do this? Realistically, can anybody of any faith, of any religion, keep all of the laws? Dude, I can't even tell you all Ten Commandments right now off the top of my head. Can, any, can you guys... You probably could. Rich, you probably could. Don't tell me. No. I think that the, the deal is this. Even if you could remember 10, can you remember 30? Can you remember 40? Can you remember 50? Can you remember 100? Can you remember 200? Can you remember 300? And not only remember them, but then do them all? Kevin, can you go to Galatians 3, verse 10 through 13? For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Because it's written, everybody who does not continue doing everything written in the book of the law is cursed. So if you cannot keep this, expect to be cursed. Verse 11, Scripture says this. Now it is clear that no one is justified by, before God by, by how? By the law. 
So you're not justified by the law. Crazy enough, watch in verse 29, Kevin. We go there in verse 29 now of, of Luke 10. But wanting to justify himself. Isn't that great? Like he, through his self-righteousness, believes he can actually do this. So he just kind of plays this game. Hey, by the way, who, who is my neighbor anyway? Like if you were to minimize like who I have to interact with, if you have to minimize who I have to quote unquote love, let's just, who's my neighbor? Is it, is it just the two houses around me? You know, or is it the 15 houses on my street? Surely it's not all of Richardson. Like, could you just tell me, teacher, who is my, my neighbor? Because the reality is he only wants it to be a select group. He asked this question. You want to know why? Because he doesn't want everybody to come to the table. He only wants the neighbors that look the same. He only wants the neighbors that smell the same, that have the same theological beliefs, that look racially the same, that actually say the same language. Oh, who's my neighbor? Oh, it's everybody that looks like me. That's what he wants to say. That's what he wants to imply. And I love this because Jesus answers, we don't know, I'm going to be honest, if it's actually a parable, we call it a parable. It could be a legit real story. Usually he says this is a parable. Usually there's some form of identification. I can't tell you this, that this is actually a parable. This could be real. I don't know that for sure, but let me just, let me just tell you this. In asking this question, who is my neighbor? I think sometimes we say the same thing to Jesus. It's almost this mentality of, hey, Jesus, what, what can I, what can I get away with believing in you and not having to do much? Like you have this mentality of like, yeah, I really like church Sunday mornings, but if you're going to ask me to do anything else, who really is my neighbor? That makes sense. Like to me, that's how we play the game. We play this game in church. Who is my neighbor? And, and really, ah, you want me to take somebody to lunch today? Like a new person? Like we, we even get offended by that kind of stuff. And so here's what Jesus does. And, and I think we do this because we're self-righteous. Kevin, can you go to Psalm 139? That's a big statement. I understand. Psalm 139, verse 21. Just maybe this is the lens of how they think. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you? Verse 22. I hate them with extreme hatred and I consider them my enemies. So you know what we do? Go back to verse 21. We say to the lost, those that hate Jesus, I don't have to hang out with them. Or oh, the Muslims who rebel against you, I don't, I don't have to interact with you. you give me, they want to kill me. Or have you seen some of those? <laughs> There's just a lot of weirdos out there. And because they're different, we automatically think because they hate you, we have no reason to hang out with him. It's crazy to me how we put these labels off because we call it this righteousness. I mean, the reality is, is who did Jesus hang out with all of the time? It wasn't the, it wasn't the, uh, the healthy. <laughs> it was the sick. The ones that actually did need Jesus, that's the ones we, we need to hang out with. 
And so Jesus begins to tell a story in verse 30. I'm in Luke 10 of verse 30. Jesus took up the question. He said, okay, fine, let's play this game. Who's the neighbor? And he says, so let me, let me just write this up here on the board. So who's my neighbor? He said, well, here's the deal. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Okay. Now, if you've gone anywhere in this area, like it's not this great, easy highway. Like it's windy. It's up and it's down. It's just, there's a lot of places that people could hide out. Let me just put it that way. 17 miles, and it says they fell into this man. He fell into the hands of robbers. And look what they did to him. They stripped him. They beat him. Uh, They fled. And I'm just going to say they left him half dead. That's the scenario of a person. Okay, now, side note. If they stripped him, not meant to be a trick question, but kind of, Rich, this one's for you. If they stripped him, what did they take? They took his clothes. They took his clothes. Clothes would always be a valuable commodity at that back at the time. Like, okay, so let's take his clothes. So there seems to be a theme every time I'm teaching this week. It's about naked people. You know, there's a demon-possessed guy. He's naked. There's a guy that's on the side of the road. He's naked. <laughs> and so who did this? The robbers. So this is the backdrop. Okay, you see a guy who's stripped. He's beat. He's, uh, and the robbers, they fled. And then they've left him half dead. And then all of a sudden, enter in character number one. Okay, character number one just says this in verse 31. Don't you love this? It, it says, a priest happened to be going down that road. And when he saw the half-dead man, right? Okay. When the priest sees the half-dead man, it says he passed by on the other side. Guys, we studied this a long time about the roles of the priest. We're talking about Aaron here, okay? We're talking about one of the sons, okay? We're talking about like the guys that understand being in the presence of God. Any idea why they wouldn't want to touch this guy? Unclean. Unclean. Kevin, if you would go to Leviticus 21 verse 1. So in their mind, remember, we've talked about this. Even last week, we unfolded this process of like when the religious are so stuck in themselves, they forget about the commodity of actually meeting somebody's needs. They forget about the commodity of actually addressing mercy and compassion of people because they're so stuck on, oh, I got to do the religious. I got to do the Sabbath thing. And Leviticus 21 verse 1 says this. uh, The Lord said to Moses, speak to Aaron's sons, the priests, and tell them a priest is not to make himself ceremonially unclean for a dead person among his relatives. So the mentality is, if I touch this guy, even if he's half dead, I will be unclean. So if I'm at the table, and I'm at the presence of God, and I even have the showbread, let's just call the showbread for a second, I'm never going to invite this half dead person to the table. When the reality is, this person needs to come to the table more than anybody. But because this person doesn't fit our mold, the priest who happened to be going down the road, he, he saw him. He looked at him. And what does Jesus do when he looks at people? He sees him with compassion. But this priest, he passed by on the other side. Okay, so we've got this scenario. Uh, let's go to the next one. And pretty much you can expect the same thing. The next one says, in the same way, verse 32, a Levite. A Levite, when he arrived at that place, do you know what that means? It means what? The priest actually, I'm sorry, the Levite was actually right there. When he arrived at that place and he saw him, then what does he do? Well, then this guy, he left as well. 
he passed by on the other side. Now, this Levite, what's the role of a Levite? Kevin, Jeff, what do they normally do at that time? Well, in the Old Testament times, they were responsible for moving the different parts of the tabernacle around. So they were in charge of the temple, basically. Totally. Absolutely right. And and I think it's a fair statement. They had a servant mentality, right? They're taking things from people that have issues, right? And they're taking them and presenting them on behalf of those people, the offerings, the sacrifices, and then guess what they're doing? Then they're taking it to the priest. Like, it's a no-brainer. This person should naturally help and assist and aid the half-dead person. But the reality is, as Nelson says this, that when the rituals of religious become normal, then they become calloused and they treat opportunities as trivial and annoying. When you go through a religious mentality and a religious spirit, when there's actually an opportunity to minister, it actually becomes an obstacle. And so here you have a priest and a Levite who say, no, I'm not going to help this guy. And I think the crazy thing, why the Lord had me go here today, guys, if we're not careful, the church is becoming more and more and more like the priests and the Levites. I don't want to help anybody. Why would I want to help somebody if it means I have to actually get messy? But in verse 33, praise the Lord, there's a Superman in the story. Praise the Lord, there's somebody that's actually going to do something about this. And what do you have? You have kind of a cool story. You have a Samaritan. It says a Samaritan on his journey came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. There's that compassion. And so how does he express his compassion? It says when he saw the man, he had compassion and he went over to him. So he actually went up out of his way, right? He went over to him. Okay. And when he went over to him, it says this, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. This oil would have been a, a soothing, healing component. Most travelers actually would have had some kind of a small first aid kit. Like this would have been common to have oil and wine. Wine would have served as an antiseptic. And so what does he do? He bandages his wounds. He pours on the olive oil. I mean, he's half dead. So you expect blood. You expect like, this is really messy. Like I might get my clothes dirty. And then what does he do? He put the half dead guy on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and then he, he took care of him. So, so what does this Samaritan do? I love this, this language, uh, Bible.org. It's kind of, they just have a couple of things that we're going to get into. One, he shows compassion. Two, he shows care. And three, he shows, he takes care of the cost. It's one thing to actually have compassion, but it's another thing to actually then put him on an animal. It's another thing to actually put bandages on him. And it's another thing to actually then take care of him and make sure he gets provided. But then look, in verse 35, it says, the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and he said, take care of him. So then he actually, he gave up of everything. Can you go to 2 Corinthians 9, 7? 2 Corinthians 9, 7, it just says this. I think to me, this is a simple picture. It says, each person should do as he has decided in his heart. Not out of regret or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. I actually don't think the Samaritan gave it reluctantly. Two denarii, roughly at that time, would probably have the estimated paid for about 24 days worth out of, of an inn. 24 days, almost a whole month. Makes me think about when we interact with people out on the streets. Uh, sometimes we have these opportunities to interact with people for hotels or motels. or And you just kind of think, oh, a whole month is a lot of money. But the Good Samaritan, man, he showed compassion. He cared and he, he gave up. 
Kevin, can you go to James 2, verse 15 and 16? James 2, verse 15 and 16 just say this. If a brother or sister is without clothes, oh, that would fit, and lacks daily food, what should we do? Verse 16. And one of you says, go in peace and keep warm and eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs. What good is it? When I think of the Son of Man, this is why I believe the Lord wanted me to go here today. Like, Jesus could have played the card, I'm the high priest in heaven. He could have played the card, I don't need to come down and interact with you people. I don't need to interact with you guys who have some serious issues. But you know what he did? It says, when he saw that we were half dead, he came over and he, he took care of us. Because he had compassion for us. And you know what he gave up? I mean, he literally gave up his life. And yet, we have this tendency to think, I'd rather live like a priest and a Levite because we're religious and we want to keep our table to ourselves. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I want to give everything up for everybody so that they can come to the table. Might not, everybody might not respond. But what I do see in this is when I see in the Good Samaritan is that he gave everything he could, as much as he could, to take care of this person he didn't even know. Just says in verse 36, Jesus, um, he says this, I, I will tell you this, when the Samaritan, he gave the money to the innkeeper, he did say take care of him. And, and he says, uh, when I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. And then look, look what Jesus does. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? So who's he asking? He's asking the, the Mosaic Law guy. He's asking the lawyer. He's asking the expert who knows everything. And I'm just going to tell you guys, I think the church, if we're not careful, you might know everything. But it's utterly pointless if you refuse to go to the people on the side of the road. And it's almost like we've become so callous towards the lost and the hurting. We never invite them to the table. There's a phrase uh, I found here. It's pretty cool. Uh, there's a couple different groups here. and the robbers have this phrase. This isn't from me. Uh, Bible.org. I love this. The Bible. The robbers have these phrases. What's yours is mine and I'm going to take it. So what's yours is mine. I'm going to take it. You know what a religious person would say? A religious person would say what's mine is mine and I'm going to keep it. But what I see with the Good Samaritan. And what I see with Jesus is what's mine is yours and I'm going to share it. I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to keep it. I'm going to share it. And so who's my neighbor? <laughs> it's anybody that needs the good news. It's anybody that needs the touch of the living God. And that's why he says in verse 37, uh, the religious guy says, uh, well, who's my neighbor? The one who showed mercy to him. He didn't even have the humility enough to say the Samaritan. He couldn't even say the Samaritan. He couldn't even interact and think like that. But you know what Jesus told him to do? 
He says, I want you to go and do the same. You go live like the person that appalls you. You go live like the Samaritan. Show compassion, care for them, and give it all up. And I think when I think of the Son of Man, that's exactly what he did. He gave it all up for me because I need him. He did the same for you. All right, guys, this is Luke 10, lesson 54. The story closes out with Martha and Mary, but Lord willing, God will show you where you need to spend time as you read through today's reading. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks. Thanks.